You're listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May you be challenged and encouraged by this message. Having the affections of your heart stirred towards greater love and understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami. Have you ever thought about how difficult it can be to maintain relationships? When I speak of relationships, I mean at every level. Friendship, marriage, siblings, organizational relationships like local churches. We can even go global and consider nations. The reality is, is that relationships are very difficult. They're difficult because of the undeniable presence of sin. Now, to some of your ears and sensibilities, that might not be your go-to word. In fact, you might not even have that as a construct of consideration, sin. Maybe a relic of days gone by, some religious term that you're not familiar with, but nevertheless, it is a biblical explanation as to what is a problem in the heart of man. The problem is not first and foremost a problem with each other, but a problem with the God who created us and put in relationship to one another. We live in proximity with one another. And sooner or later, no matter whether we're related or married or of the same ethnicity, same economics, same alma mater or otherwise, those relationships can become greatly affected by sin. Deconstructing, if you will, what is good and right. We see this from the first marriage, Adam and Eve, to the first family, to the first nation. There has always been relationship drama, corrupted, affected. We know this to be true on a personal level. I mean, just think about it with kind of these unofficial family reunions of sorts. You have family weddings, you have family funerals. Weddings, nevertheless, should be celebratory. Family funerals, funerals should nevertheless be solemn and times of collective mourning together. And yet, in the middle of that, these often bring together families who have been estranged in days in between, weeks in between, maybe even years in between, and they begin to see each other for the first time. You know, siblings you've not picked up the phone and talked to, or you have, but they've not called you back, or cousins you've not seen, or maybe parents you've not known for years, or other relationships, and then you see each other, and then the drama begins. Do we talk? Do we not? Do we acknowledge each other? Do we not? These reunions can remind us of unreconciled problems and past hurts and rude personalities. If it's true on a personal level, it's really true on a national level. I mean, we could just see this in our own country. The political landscape of our country almost seems comical, if not tragic. But it's not just within our own country, it even becomes within countries themselves with one another. Even just this past weekend, if you can consider, we learned this morning of another Russian drone attack, this time on Odessa with the bombing of an apartment building. Meanwhile, in Haiti, this morning, the capital Port-au-Prince is gripped by chaos as armed gangs kill police and vow to remove the prime minister. Meanwhile, the Israeli military strikes in Gaza continues trying to remove Hamas from the area, but sadly with many Palestinian civilian casualties. 
Argentina's president vows to push economic reforms with or without parliament's support. You see, my friends, from local family gatherings to global G20 summits, drama always seems to be present when people get together. Oh, there's nothing new under the sun here. And this is exactly what we see even this morning in our passage in Joshua. If you have a Bible, let me ask you to turn to Joshua chapter 22. Joshua 22, we're going to look back this morning at an expose of this problem in the life of the nation of Israel. If you're just joining us for the first time, we've been, as a church, working our way through the book of Joshua, learning this historical, biblical, accurate record under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, lessons for us even today, but realizing why it's been preserved by the Holy Spirit, written by men, but carried along by the Holy Spirit, that we might hear from God. As we learned this morning, there's problems that will arise. If you could sort of summarize the main point of our lesson this morning, I would say it's this. Reconciliation takes work, but it's worth it. Reconciliation takes work, but it is worth it. Joshua 22. We were last week in Joshua 20 and 21... In these last two chapters of the previous week, uh, we saw the significance of what was to be learned there. We learned lessons about people and priests and promises from God. And what's happening is there's a transition in Israel's present practice from having the swords and the spears in their hands to now being set down and not having the plows and the shovels being picked up. A land to be cultivated as a people is settling into their new lives in this land. Some lessons we want to learn. First of all, in verses 1 to 9, let's learn a commendation of faithfulness. To do that, follow along as I read to you Joshua 22, verses 1 to 4. At that time, Joshua summoned the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh and said to them, You have kept all that Moses, the servant of the Lord God, commanded you and have obeyed my voice in all that I've commanded you. You have not forsaken your brothers these many days down to this day, but have been careful to keep the charge of the Lord your God. But now the Lord your God has given rest to your brothers as he promised them. Therefore, turn and go to your tents in the land where your possession lies, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you on the other side of the Jordan." What you see just in the first part of this section here will be in verses 1 to 9, but just to sort of pull the carbon look here, is in these first four verses, you have this commendation. In Numbers 32, earlier in the record of Israel, they were asked for a portion of land. This makes sense because they predominantly had a lot of livestock, and this was good land on the other side of the Jordan River for the animals. And as we learned back in Joshua 1, the women, the children were to stay back with that livestock, but the men were to go forward as they agreed to Moses and help the rest of the tribes of Israel. And you know how long it's been? Seven years. Seven years since they have left the land with their wives and children behind. And notice what I want you to see here is how Joshua commends them, how they obeyed. What is this that he says here? Verse 2, you have kept all that Moses, servant of the Lord, commanded you and have obeyed my voice and all that I commanded you. 
It's encouraging to see how he commends them. They have kept their word. Is all the glory to be to God? Is, is it not God, as repeatedly throughout the book of Joshua, the one who gets the glory, the credit, if you will, for how this land has been conquered? The answer is undeniably yes. And yet, in the middle of that, Joshua says, I see you. You've been faithful. It's certainly an example, even as a leader to his people, to encourage them. He acknowledges that they have God to thank, and yet encouragement is due to them. I'm reminded all the time as a pastor how God is answering prayers here at Grace Church. Every Sunday, we pray for those who gather ahead of time, and all of you are invited to come at 10 a.m. for a prayer meeting in this very room. We pray for the preaching of the Word of God. We pray for the elements of the service. We pray for those of you who do not know Christ, would come to faith in Christ and surrender your life to Him. And we pray for different aspects and what we see in Scripture for us as a church. And you know what's undeniable? God is answering those prayers. People are getting saved. Lives are being transformed. Hearts are being renewed and shaped. God is hearing us. But you know what's also undeniable at Grace Church? The faithful witness are brothers and sisters like you around here. Do you, do you understand how much of Grace Church is just run by and carried out by normal people like you who don't get a dime? They're just here out of the goodness of their heart, the love for the Lord, and they serve. I found myself even delighting this morning as I drove by and went to park my car to see the men in their bright green vests helping prepare to park people. Maybe you were greeted by them this morning. The people who walked in and greeted you here this morning, the, the, the volunteers up here on the stage who don't get paid. The people who are running the slideshow and the sound, they're just volunteers. The host homes who throughout every single week are opening their homes, fixing their pillows, putting away their trash, telling their kids to be just a little quiet for like two hours if you could. Community group leaders who are studying the Bible ahead of time, reading through their workbooks and preparing. And then I learned of these pop-up shops, times where you guys get together and do what I've not planned, but you've been encouraged to do, which is to get together and read the Bible, read books, pray together. To get together and have dinners together and to have hospitality together. Friends, Joshua might commend them for their faithfulness. And I thank the Lord for that example to me because I mean to stand here today before you and commend you for your faithfulness. So many of you men and women have been faithful to serve. You serve with your time, you serve with your money, you serve with your desire. You say, Lord, here is my life. For them, it would cost them seven years away from their wife and kids. Don't worry, we're not about to make that request of you. Husbands, you can relax. Young men, you can relax. Joshua commends them for their faithfulness. But look at the transition. He moves from commending to then commanding. Kind of in the spirit of 1 Thessalonians to excel still more. Look at what he says in verse 5 and verses 6. He says, only be very careful to observe the commandment and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord God, commanded you 
to love the Lord your God and to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments and to cling to him and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. So Joshua blessed them and sent them away and so they went to their tents. In verses five and six, you could say there's these six commands. Observe, love, walk, keep, cling, serve. It's this sort of multi-dimensional way to say, do not forget what you have been taught, what you have seen, what you have heard, what you have explained to others. Do not forget. A number of you in this room, you are the first person in your family to become a Christian. And you and I have had many conversations in your humble desire of genuine love for your family, for them to know the same grace found in Christ that you have found. Some of you may be even here today as a family member of such a person. They love you. They want nothing more than for you to know the same Savior that they have come to know. But there's others of you, you come from Christian family not simply a name, in practice. You've had what others of us did not have growing up. You have a Christian mom or you have a Christian dad. And you have actually memories of being brought to Martha Wilcoxon's Sunday school class as she was teaching the children the word of God. And you remember sitting at your dining room table with your heads bowed as a family and praying with your mom or with your dad over the meal. And you remember being going to vacation Bible school or you remember being at student ministry at your church and you remember these lessons. So much of your childhood shaped by these experiences. But you know what inevitably happens for almost all of you? You leave. You move. That house you were raised in is not the house that you will live in for the rest of your life, for most of you. And your parents said to you and prayed for you the same thing. My wife and I said to our three sons and prayed for them. Do not forget what you have learned. Guard this word in your heart. While we might be absent from each other in person, you have to understand that wherever you are, though we're not there, the Lord is there. The reality for my wife and I is that we often average one phone call a week with our three sons. One is in New Mexico in the Air Force. One is in Colorado with his wife. One is in Copenhagen, Denmark in school. And we say, while we're not with you, give us an update of what life is like. Hoping that they would not forget all that they have been taught. Joshua is doing the exact same thing here. He's saying, I know what's about to happen. You've been with us for years. And you're about to cross that river and you're not about to be with us. But I don't want anything to change. 
That's why he has a sort of compounding instruction. Observe the commandment of the law of the Lord, of the Moses, the servant of the Lord had commanded you. Love the Lord your God. Walk in all his ways. Keep his commandments. Cling to him. Serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. It's almost a sense in which you can imagine a parent saying to a child, yeah, 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 yeah. The child says back, I get it, mom. I get it, dad. He is saying, listen, in so much as you cling, you will be fine. But in so much as you let go, you will struggle. And you only have to turn the pages in your Bible a few pages, but go forward in time 30 to 40 years and find out they didn't listen. This passionate appeal, call for obedience and love and fellowship and service Their military obligations were fulfilled, but Josh reminded them of their abiding spiritual commitments and significance of this. And notice what he says at the very beginning of verse 5. Be very careful. Be very careful. Why does he say this? Because even though they had a history of integrity, they were still being challenged to declare their faithfulness to the Lord in the coming years. Friends, here's the lesson. Historical faithfulness does not guarantee future obedience. Historical faithfulness does not guarantee future obedience. That's not meaning to discourage you, to discredit all that you've done. It's simply saying, don't be so naive to think that because you've done something well in the past, that you can sort of ride on the wave of that into the future. Friend, you and I have a decision to make every day when we wake up, for whom and to what are we going to live for today? He's calling them to that reminder. Every day is a chance to renew our vows to the Lord. Otherwise, the temptations of this world, the evil one, and our own indwelling temptations will lure us away from following the Lord. Many lessons here. So there's this commendation and there's this command, which is honestly a display of Joshua's love for them. It takes us, secondly, to a crisis of relationship. This is kind of a bizarre thing that takes place, this crisis of relationship. Look, if you would, first of all, the action, verses 10 through 12. When they came to the region of the Jordan that is in the land of Canaan, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh built there an altar by the Jordan, an altar of imposing size. And the people of Israel heard it and said, Behold, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh have built the altar at the frontier of the land of Canaan in the region about the Jordan on the side that belongs to the people of Israel. Verse 12, the people of Israel heard of it. The whole assembly of the people of Israel gathered at Shiloh to make war against them. What just happened? We went from like, man, we had a crazy seven years together. All right, let's get together. Let's renew our vows. Okay, two and a half of the tribes, you guys are going over there. Don't forget the word of the Lord. I'm commending you, but I'm also commanding you. You're like, all right, great. We got it. They start walking away Right before they get ready to get settled, they do something unexpected. They build, essentially, their version of a place of worshiping the Lord on the other side of the river 
in a way that the other nine and a half tribes are like, wait, 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 what are you doing over there? We've agreed that we worship God as he's instructed in the temple that he's going to instruct for us to have in Jerusalem. What are you doing over there? And apparently, friends, this is a significant enough offense that it's potentially requiring capital punishment. They're, they're about to go to war over this. That's the action. What's the reaction? Look at verse 13 and following. Then the people of Israel sent to the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh in the land of Gilead. Phinehas, well, he's got a reputation, the son of Eleazar, the priest, in verse 14, and with him ten chiefs, one from each of the tribal families of Israel, every one of them the head of the family among the clans of Israel, verse 15, and they came to the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh in the land of Gilead, and they said to him, thus says the whole congregation of the Lord, what is this breath, excuse me, this breach of faith that you have committed against the God of Israel in turning away this day from the following the Lord by building yourselves an altar this day in rebellion against the Lord. Have we not had enough of the sin at Peor from which even yet we have not cleansed ourselves? Or for that there came a plague upon the congregation of the Lord, verse 18, that you too must turn away this day from following the Lord? And if you too rebel against the Lord today, then tomorrow he will be angry with the whole congregation of Israel. But now if the land of your possession is unclean, pass over into the Lord's land where the Lord's tabernacle stands and take for yourselves a possession among us. Only do not rebel against the Lord or make us as rebels by building for yourselves an altar other than the altar of the Lord our God. Did not Achan the son of Zerah, break faith in the matter of the devoted things. And wrath fell upon all the congregation of Israel. And he did not perish alone for his iniquity. What's happening? What's happening is the tension is thick. Battle is being prepared. Swords are being picked up and sharpened. The question is whether or not we're going to have a civil dialogue or civil war. And they send Phineas as the head of this delegation. If you're not familiar with Phineas, let me just give you a brief bio on who this guy is. He was Eleazar's son, who is noted for his righteous zeal for the Lord. He headed a group of ten tribal rulers whose responsibility was to confront these other two and a half tribes. He's even mentioned with the sin of Achan and what he does there. Notice in verse 18 the concern, all the people can suffer for the sins of the one or the few. Notice the generosity of verse 19. The nine and a half tribes make a generous offer to relocate those tribes into their land. This would be costly. They'd have to give up some of their own land. Significant here is to then notice the response. And we're going to come back to this text, but track with it as I take the first lap here. Look at verse 21. And the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh said an answer to the heads of the families of Israel. Verse 22, the mighty one, God, the Lord, the mighty one, God, the Lord, he knows. And let Israel itself know, if it was in rebellion or in breach of faith against the Lord, 
do not spare us today. For building an altar to turn away from following the Lord, or if we did so to offer burnt offerings or grain offerings or peace offerings on it, may the Lord himself take vengeance. No, we did it from fear that in time to come, your children might say to our children, what have you to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? For the Lord has made the Jordan a boundary between us. And you, you people of Reuben and people of Gad, you have no portion in the Lord. So your children might make our children cease to worship the Lord. Therefore, we said, let us now build an altar, not for burnt offering, nor for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you and between our generations after us, that we do perform the service of the Lord in his presence with our burnt offerings and sacrifices and peace offerings so your children will not say to our children in time to come, you have no portion of the Lord. And we thought if this should be said to us or to our descendants in time to come, we should say, behold, the copy of the altar of the Lord, which our fathers made, not for burnt offerings, nor for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you. Far be it from us that we should rebel against the Lord. Turn away this day from following the Lord by building an altar for burnt offering, grain offering, or sacrifice other than the altar of the Lord, our God, that stands before his tabernacle. This is their response. Here's to summarize what they're saying. We're worried that when we're out of sight, we're going to be out of mind. We're worried not about you. We're worried about your kids and your kids' kids. In time, we'll not know our children or our grandchildren, and they'll think we're not together. And they'll not welcome us to worship the Lord. They'll think we're from a different people group because we're in a different place. Notice what they do here in verses 21 to 23. They invoke God as a witness. They swore twice by his three names, El, Elohim, and Yahweh, the Mighty One, God, the Lord. This is affirming that if their active was in rebellion against God and his commands concerning worship, then they deserved his judgment. But they wanted to make sure that they would be accepted. But here's the problem. What motivated them was fear. The truth is, we do a lot of stupid things in life because of fear. You do it, I do it. Because what is missed on probably this entire room, so let me just be clear so that you don't miss it now, God had already instructed in his law that all Israelite males were to appear at the sanctuary three times a year. He said this back in Exodus 23. And if they obeyed that, that would preserve the unity of all the tribes. But for them, it, they were afraid it wasn't enough. And this is often what happens between you and me and the Lord. We, we, we know what his word says, but what if? And so we, we add these additional layers to give us a sense of assurance. Take matters in our own hands to give us a sense of control. Well, we look at the action, the reaction, their response, and then you can see, encouragingly, the rejoicing. Look at verse 30. When Phineas the priest 
and the chiefs of the congregation, the heads of the families of Israel who are with him, heard the words that the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the people of Manasseh spoke. It was good in their eyes. And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the priest, said to the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the people of Manasseh, today we know that the Lord is in our midst because you have not committed this breach of faith against the Lord. Now you have delivered the people of Israel from the hand of the Lord. Then Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the priests and the chiefs, returned from the people of Reuben and the people of Gad in the land of Gilead to the land of Canaan, to the people of Israel, brought back word to them, and the report was good in the eyes of the people of Israel. And the people of Israel blessed God and spoke no more of making war against them to destroy the land where the people of Reuben and the people of Gad were settled. The people of Reuben and the people of Gad called the altar witness, for they said, it is a witness between us that the Lord is God. What I want you to see here is what one writer, John J. Davis says. He says, the unifying factor in ancient Israel was not her culture, architecture, economy, or even military objectives. The long-range unifying factor was her worship of Jehovah. They were one people because of their desire to obey the Lord, to worship the Lord, and for their children to do the same. With the main thrust of this chapter being in honoring and worshiping the Lord, there's some lessons we can learn even relationally with each other. So looking back at this text freshly and briefly, five conflict resolution lessons for us to learn. Number one, the basis of agreement between God's people should be the word of God. The basis of agreement between God's people should be the word of God. You'll notice the correcting reality here. The significance was what does the word say to do? The compromise of truth is always going to be costly for the individual directly involved and for the entire community to whom they're connected. And this was something that had to be addressed. And so they had to come back to, what does the Lord say? What does his word say? Too often in conversations, people can be disagreeing on something, but the question is, what does the word of God say to this conversation? Not what do you think, not what do I think, what does the word of God say? Too little, too many Christians are having conversations, or perhaps not even having them at all, but should be having conversations with their Bibles open not appealing to how they feel, but appealing to what has been written. Secondly, notice in the text, questions should precede conclusions. They're ready to make war, verse 12, but then the questions come. Verse 16, what is this breach of faith that you've committed against the God of Israel? Judgmentalism might represent itself as discernment, but it often is a self-righteous assessment. Friends, we would do well in conversation with each other to come not with conclusions, but to come with questions. I have seen, I have heard, I would now like to know. Could you help me to understand? It's wrong to judge people's motives on the basis of circumstantial evidence. They simply knew and thought that they knew what they were doing and why they're doing it, but they had to ask questions first. 
We do well to remember Proverbs 18, 13. It says, if one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and shame. Third, conflict resolution is never easy or convenient. Conflict resolution is never easy or convenient. They had just finished seven years of war. The last thing these guys want to go do is get into another war, and this time with their own people. Listen, I know what it's like to have to see something and not want to say something. And to use the veneer of, I don't want to be judgmental, as an excuse to, I'm too lazy and tired. Conflict resolution is never easy or convenient. It requires patient, prayerful, humble pursuit of the concern we have with a brother or sister. Number four, if you are confronted, examine your motive and your manner. Examine your motive and your manner. It's not always what you meant to do. It's also how you did it that perhaps caused the crisis. The motive and the manner should not only be considered when reflecting back on the initial problem in question, but also how you respond. What's interesting with them is they had the best of motives, but they were still taking the wrong action. There was not a conversation. There was not a trusting in the Lord. They were indeed dealing with it themselves. Number five, Christians should be motivated and confident in reconciliation because of the gospel. Christians should be motivated and confident in reconciliation because of the gospel. Too often when we have a problem with each other, we do not want to approach it because either A, we're too sinfully self-absorbed in our laziness, and or B, we're too fearful that I might lose my reputation in your eyes, i.e. your friendship or thoughts of me if I have a hard conversation with you. Friends, there's nothing you need from that friend that you don't already have in Christ. Assurance, identity, security, hope, peace. So you can lovingly, prayerfully, humbly pursue them out of concern for them, asking before you conclude, but nevertheless pursue them. And the reason you can do that is because of the gospel. 2 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 11 says, Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. In the middle of these phrases about loving and comforting, it says aim for restoration. Too often, you have heard, you have seen, I have heard, I have seen, People who seemingly sing the same songs, sit in the same building, go to the same programs, but have relational division and hostility between each other. They're not reconciled. They had a perspective here that they needed to work this out because if not, it would not only affect them, it would affect their children and the generations that would follow. This is significant. It becomes really a byproduct, if you will, back to the very beginning and when he says, be careful to observe the commandment, the law of Moses, to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, to cling to him. Friends, you have to understand there are relational implications with one another based upon your profession of faith and love for Jesus Christ. So 
there's a correlation that if we profess to love the word of God, delight in him, desire to honor him with our life, that has an interpersonal dimension by how that works itself out in this community of Christians. And for those of you who are not Christians, be clear about this. Your first point of reconciliation, I would say, is not actually to some other person around you or maybe at home waiting for you. A roommate, a spouse, a sibling, a friend, those are things to consider to be sure. And I think you really should consider those things if you can identify that there's not reconciliation there. However, I would contend with you, your greatest point to begin a relationship reconciliation is to be reconciled to God. To recognize that that problem is actually the greater of the problems you have in a relationship, dis disjointedness, and that you should be reconciled to him, which you can be because he extends himself in peace through faith in his son for the forgiveness of your sins. But that, that requires you to surrender, to no longer rebel, to say, I'm tired of arguing. I want to concede. I need forgiveness. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May God draw you nearer to Him through His Word. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami.